Welcome everybody back to another episode of the Geopolitical Pivot Podcast. It is your host, Samaj McDowell, and we have a full room today. Um, Aubrey's back. Looking like big country out here. Come on, big country. <laughs> He's got a trucker hat on and everything. Thighs is out. The knees are out today. <laughs> right. Even though it's like raining outside. Why are you? He's dressed because like a little bit. You're dressed like going bass fishing. I just realized it. That's crazy. Do you want bass fishing after this? Uh, this is kind of my fishing outfit. But you actually go fishing? Yeah. Oh, shit. Yeah. All right. Wayne Wright's here. Hi, Wayne Wright. What's up? We got Brian Revis. Uh, yeah, and he's sitting next to me, too. So yeah, that's right. I know you love it. I'm going to have to drench myself in Clorox after this. <laughs> Jesus <laughs> Christ. This is just... <laughs> you know, it's a lot to handle on this Saturday. Hey, V. Hi. Veronica Prachio is in the building. She's just chilling in her... I don't even have, I don't have anything to call her right now. She's just chilling right now with her Ocean City Maryland fit on. And then there's Zach the man. Hello. How are you? Doing doing well. You're gonna do your best to keep up. I'll do my I'm not an I'm not an expert on this subject, but I'll try. All right, well, yeah. That's all that matters that you know that you try. Yeah. That's all that I, I acknowledge ask. my lack of knowledge. And what Zach was referencing is we're gonna get into China's uh, Policies with the Solomon Islands and how that's been um, affecting uh, the geopolitical policies of various countries in the region. But before we do that, I have to plug a contributor here, Brian Revis. He just got a paper released on Russia's hybrid warfare in uh, Active Measures, which is a it's a magazine about statecraft and espionage and all that good stuff. So, Brian, would you like to just give us a Wikipedia summary of what you wrote about um, and then why you wrote about it? Uh. Yeah, so the paper I wrote about, that was about specifically Russia's, um, how Russia uses disinformation, cyber warfare, etc., in how, how it uses in general, and I used specifically what it did in Ukraine from, from 2013-2014 all the way to before the most recent invasion. And um, a lot of it went, a lot of it went over to history of what was the beginnings of this policy of how it was used. Like, for example, it goes, there's examples of it looking at the, if you can look at the Mongols, you can look at the Soviet, the Soviet Union during the Cold War, and then, and then you see how during the 90s and as well as the 2000s, how Russia figured out how to use new technologies such as computers to be able to adapt the lessons learned from the past to modern day uses, and then Ukraine was the first true example where we saw how it was perfected. What spurred you to write on the subject? Um, excluding just a paper for class. <laughs> well, I mean, I, saw, I, I read the, the intro and said you started writing it before all this stuff started happening in Ukraine. So, like, one thing I should say, I don't know if I've ever said this on the podcast, but um, when 2014 happened, like, when I say that, when... Russia made Crimea and Eastern Ukraine got turned to a war zone, et cetera, et cetera. Like, I was one of the people who, I would like to say, got affected by some of this. I saw how Russia's media apparatus worked. I saw how the how the internet worked and how it was being used. And I saw so much information that basically, I feel like I had a front row seat to seeing how Russia used its disinformation as well as how it used certain cyber attacks to, for its own goals and how it affected people in general, because even, I'll admit, it affected me to a degree, in my opinions, at the time. And it took act the actual invasion for me to realize that everything I saw was wrong. 
So I wanted to be able to write something that showed what was what Russia does, how they do it, and how effective it truly is at getting what objectives Russia wants. Not on like a tactical level, but on a very much a strategic level, which is something I think most people, especially here in the U.S., don't realize a lot of what Russia does for these tactics are strategic. They're not tactical. Well, no, I appreciated reading the article. I'm going to dive back into it after the podcast is done. When I have, you know, I have a free Sunday coming up. Um, and, you know, I put, I put a link to the active measures that generally you wrote in on my LinkedIn. Samaj has done the same. And we'll put a link up on the geopolitical pivots, social media as well. But just want to say thank you, congrats. And now we can kind of move on into the topic of the day, which Aubrey actually brought to our attention. So, Aubrey, since you brought it to our attention, would you like to introduce it? Just give a little summary. Yeah, this kind of scooted past or radar, well... I say scooted past your radar because it's just something that happened last March. Uh, but the Solomon Islands ended up uh, signing a security pact with uh, the, uh, the People's Republic of China. People's Republic of China. And uh, it just shows that there's been, or at least some example of a shift to China with this pact being brokered. And uh, it happened right before a senior American diplomat was supposed to visit Solomon's and, and try to mediate it. Uh, but unfortunately, for, for certain uh, reasons, that it just didn't happen in time. So the reason that the Solomon's are important to the United States, important to mostly our allies, uh, is because of it's situated uh, right off the coast of Australia, and it has a lot of access to the shipping lanes, and uh, a lot of the a lot of the ANZAC allies, as well as the United States, are afraid that if China was able to get some sort of military logistical base, which is they're already kind of doing that right now, from what I've seen in the reporting, uh, that in the event of any type of war to happen that that would be a critical point to stage attacks and choke off any type of supply going through with the Coral Sea up over through uh, into Australia and then into the greater part of uh, the Pacific Island rims. And it affects us only because uh, we've, we've been so focused on countering China that we're, we're not looking at fostering and just implanting relationships with these different Pacific Islands and I, when I was going through this, I was seeing that each different island sort of had their own take or own stand on exactly where they should be, whether with, whether it be with China or the United States, and even the Solomons. Solomons are all, they all have their own single, I want to say, entity, or they, they act sort of as single entities uh, rather than a cohesive unified country when it comes to China. There might be one island, Solomon Islands, that says we don't like China, while the capital island says we're going to be closer to China. And so it, it just becomes this uh, big division and race for influence within not only the South China Sea region, but the Pacific Island region as well. And uh, it's just uh, a development that I thought was interesting to bring up because it goes back into 
uh, a lot of what we've been looking at with China over the past couple of years. Yeah, no, what you said about the capital of the Solomon Islands really like in the security pact with China, that's that's true. I think uh, the Solomon's prime minister, uh, how do you say his last name? Sugavare? So, I think so. Yeah, so, so, Sugavare or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, he told his parliament that um, uh, opponents of this new security pact that he made with China are a grave security threat to his country. And of course, the two opponents, right, are the two major opponents of this pact are Australia and the United States. So that kind of tells you the state of mind of um, the Solomon Islands, like authoritative element of their regime, like where they're looking at. They're looking at China. What were you going to say, Brian? There's something, I remember when we were first discussing this, um, like discussing, talk about this topic, I remember I found an article from New York Times. Um, I don't, it was a few weeks ago, so I may have missed, I my memory might be a little bit hazy. I think I remember there were some theories as to if the lead, if, the leader of the Solomons might have seemed a little bit more like I know his opposition is trying to claim that he might be trying to hold on to power for longer, which is might be one of the reasons for why this why this agreement is going to place, especially because the draft a draft agreement that was leaked said that um, the that China would be allowed to send in police forces to help with keeping stability in the Solomons, especially when recently they had a massive protest, I think, over China and Chinese influence in the Solomons vote. I mean, then does it, don't you guys think this indicates a more interventionist Beijing foreign policy when it comes to military, mil, at least militarily, because they're willing to put an air, an air base that could support civil, civilian and military operations on Solomon Islands based on the, the, the way the security pact is looking? Do you think they would do this with any other of the Indo-Pacific islands? Well, Zach, China would never do that. <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? Really? But it. Um. Aubrey has a very dry sense of humor. Ah, very that's British. a geopolitician like for you. Sahara Desert dry. It is. I choked on that joke. Uh, he, he did. Um, when it comes to China, just to, I guess, to point to your, uh, to your question, if they had the opportunity to do it, they would. And the reason why I say that is because if you're looking at the trajectory of uh, um, China's developing policy, it's all in accordance to achieving some sort of at least regional authority by 2050. Um, that goes, I mean, they call it the, China, the Chinese dream uh, as a way to essentially rectify the, the century of humiliation. Um, but also as a way, and depending on who you ask, um, especially if you look talking about the people's, uh, well, the, the Chinese Communist Party, after the the accidental bombing of the Chinese embassy in Belgrade by the United States, now their understanding of their position is not necessarily communistic as in Mao or Deng Xiaoping, but it's much more now nationalistic. Um, they still utilize you know, the, the the communist symbols and so on and so forth, similar to how Russia still utilizes symbols of the Soviet Union as a representative of reconstruction. Um, but the symbols that they use are, in essence, just that, symbols. Uh, China, especially now under Xi Jinping, absolutely. I mean, we see it in Djibouti, uh, we see it in Greece, we see it in Israel, uh, more particularly in Haifa. Uh, we see it in... Um, West Africa, see in South America, where if you ever are able to look at a map and you look at two things, major trade routes, especially major ports, 
and underwater submarine cables. If you can look at or the, the cables for telecommunications, yeah. if you look at those two maps over each other, and if you look at where China is either drafting or implementing their ports, then you'll see, oh shit. Yeah. Um, it's in your face that they're not going to call it military facilities. And if you look at it, I say that China is doing what's reverse. Um, Jesus, it's going to, it's not going to. Reverse mercantilism, where basically China is establishing economic institutions first, and then they send the security institutions, where mercantilism, especially drew the, the creation of global empires, it was reversed. We send the military and the political first, and then we do it for exploiting resources. China's doing opposite. That way, you don't raise any alarms. Um, so with the Solomon Islands, and then we get back to you, Aubrey, because um, then that will put us into our conversations about the island chains um, and why this is important as far as the Solomon Islands is concerned for China, um, is that when we look at the ambitions of China, China has territorial grievances with literally every single neighbor on their border. Every single one. Um, with that, and then depending on who, like I said, who you ask within the, the elites of the Chinese Communist Party, they feel that they have to have a an aggressive change in their policy to exert themselves. But the problem is, is that they started to show those sources of aggression, in my opinion, too early. If you look at the, one of the 36 stratagems, Wayne Wright. <laughs> one of the 36 stratagems is basically to essentially not raise the alarm of the hegemon while you essentially reposition yourself strategically. So then once you are in a position to directly challenge and cut him off, then he is rendered essentially useless at that point. Xi Jinping got too aggressive too early. And he showed so his hand. he showed his hand, unfortunately, in 2012 and then again in 2015, 16. Um, because he showed his hand too early, he had to usurp power quickly, at least domestically. So then he has to then keep up that ag aggressive approach, no matter how that is to be displayed. Well, you, I'm sorry to interrupt you, okay. but uh, would you say, for when you say he had to be aggressive and taking over power and domestic, mm -hmm. would you say that would be why there's so much importance in the 2018 election? Yes. Um, but then also there's a lot of domestic upheaval going on in China um, because of the state of the economy, resurging COVID cases, um, so on and so forth, where... Again, we were alluding to before we started the podcast the notion of the mandate of heaven, which is a very ancient philosophy in China, whereas at the moment that the leader becomes negligent and is no longer able to provide three major things, economic security, physical security, and prosperity, um, he has to go. Well, she sees this, and now he's the, literally the most powerful man in China, where he he's in line, basically, to serve until the day he dies. Um, in 2050, he would be like 87. Um, but he needed to do that in order to secure his mandate of heaven. That doesn't run out. Um, but back to you all. I wanted to put a couple caveats with this action. Uh, so the Chinese have stated that they're signing this security cooperation pact with the Solomons to 
protect Chinese interests in, in, in the Solomons. The life, liberty, and property of Chinese citizens. Yes, yeah. yes. Life, liberty, and property of Chinese citizens. Sounds awfully familiar. What was <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, the other thing is that I, I heard, at least in the reporting, that there is a stadium being built for the 2023 Olympic Games at the Solomons. What? That's what I'm... First off, the Solomons are hosting an Olympic game. Yeah. That raises questions for me, but... Well, as, not, does, I as it does for me. But, well, Aubrey, you started something here. I want to dive a little bit into the draft. I haven't read the pact yet. I've read mm. the draft oh, I did. the pact. And what I took from that is any Chinese military or police engagement in the Solomons has to be signed off by the Solomon Islands. Yes. This isn't like Guantanamo yeah. Bay. Where we own it in perpetuity, we can send people to and from. Right. So that's an important caveat to think about when we're analyzing, well, what do we think U.S. policymakers should do to address this? Well, I know for a fact that, like, at least this is, the, we'll get back to Solomon. I know for a fact that, like, China has been, like, putting a lot of resources into, like, developing nations throughout the world, right? Well, like, I, like, like, we, like I was going to talk about the I was going to talk about the aid mix up because it's interesting, but go keep going. Yes, and seeing that they've been doing that all over the world to try and I guess like get more regional influence in various places. Why, if they do that in the Solomon Islands and essentially like bribe the leader with infrastructure, they could do whatever the hell they want. Well, I mean, I, Brian, I'll let you go after this bit real quick. We'll just answer your questions, Zach. Uh, just looking at the aid distribution to the Solomon Islands. Well, we'll talk grants and loans, right? So the top three granters of aid to the Solomon Islands are Australia, New Zealand, and the United States. Yeah. Australia provides about $130 million uh, in grant aid. Um, New Zealand's a lot less. It's about $22 million. Uh, U.S. is even less. It's about $20 million. So really, Australia, in terms of the Western nations, they're really taking the lead in reaching out to the Solomons and investing. Mm -hmm. I, um, but in terms of loans... Uh, Loans, loans. There's a lot less. So, like the Asian Development Bank in 2019, they only loaned about four million. So you got to think, oh, that's a that's a big drop off, right? Like China is loaning much less on average than Australia, New Zealand, okay. and the United States. So well, that's, at least that's, that's a good thing. That's something to think about. Uh, Brian, do you have something? Okay. Brian, go ahead. Um. Now, my thing I want to think about is, well, going back to the Solomons and talking about the draft treaty, um, feel free to correct me on this, since uh, um, I'm basing this off of information I read, like, a few weeks ago, but it sounded like people were talking about the fear of having, obviously having, like, Chinese troops defending investment projects, etc., in the Solomons, especially they're using the protests that happened there as a, as a reasoning too. And the one thing that I want to compare, I kind of compare that to honestly is the last time I heard about this happening, which there might be a sooner example, but the last example I remember this happening was Japan in 1933. The reason I say that is because before then Japanese troops were stationed in China to defend the, uh, defend the rail line going through Manchuria. And that and using and they use that to hold influence in that region as well as eventually to take over it, take over Manchuria during the 1930s. But that was different. I do believe you talk about the Mukden incident. Yeah, but I, that that was that was something. I don't think the Chinese. Got I don't think I'm not saying the Chinese will try to take over the Solomons. That's not what I'm trying to say. I think they would do it if in any way they would do something very different. But the. What I was trying to say is as you try to put in more troops into a region based on 
investment interests or people or whatever, it allows you to gain more influence within a nation to the point where you can kind of just control the government. Actually, Veronica, go to Veronica and then we'll go to Aubrey. I just have a question. Yeah. What what kind of differences in aid are we looking at here? In terms of Australia is focusing on economic development. And humanitarian. And humanitarian. And what is China offering? Security? Infrastructure. Infrastructure. But it's much less, and you got to think, well, if if Australia is funding these projects and the Solomon Islanders are used to these this money, mm -hmm. and say Australian policymakers are like, no, we're not comfortable with doing business with you anymore, we're going to withdraw a lot of this aid, that's going to cause a massive problem for Solomon Island policymakers going forward. Like, they're going to have to reallocate their budgets, they're going to have to, in order to maintain legitimacy, right? Like, you... you you take that much aid or any significant portion of the aid out of an economy, it's going to hurt it. Well, then this is this is infrastructure aid. I thought there was a security element to it. There, there, there is. There's, there is. I'm, I'm this, this is from two years ago. This has nothing to do fair with enough, that. Fair enough. No, that makes sense. I just am wondering, kind of, what is pushing the Solomons this direction, and what what about their domestic issues? Is the security um, pillar more important than say the aid that you're talking? Well part, of it, well, part of it is the humanitarian aid I was talking about. The Solomon Islanders are very conservative. I mean, conservative, they have, a lot of them have a more 16th century interpretation of social relations. And a lot of the Australian aid has been going to modernize that. And so that's really kind of messing with the social fabric of the Solomon Islands. And a lot of Islanders, even their policymakers, they really don't like that. Like nobody likes an outside country coming in and telling them you got to live a separate way. That's that's interesting. Point yeah, right. I, I I look this up actually. I'm I'm interested in the Trans Tasman country, so I look at where they spend a lot of their aid, and obviously it's to Oceania, mm -hmm. like Papua New Guinea, Solomon Islands. Those are the big ones that Australia lends to, and then New Zealand lends to Fiji, Tonga, Tuvalu, etc. Um, go ahead, Zach. Because it's like the whole sort of thing be about trying attempting at least to control the um the coral sea cable system underneath the um. Underneath, I, I was like, all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we were saying, like, so Maj was saying that it's all about China, and China's um, overlapping aid and, like, attempt to get influence within regions and placing ports and strategic locations have been coinciding with various under underwater cable systems. Underwater sea cable systems, yeah. major trading routes. I mean, looking at the Asia-Pacific, trillions of dollars, uh, especially... Leading up to COVID nineteen, and then after, during the the lockdown, uh, the ge the maritime geographic area that witnessed a substantial increase in uh, maritime trading, ironically, was the Asia Pacific. Remember, when the vast majority of the world was still on lockdown, what country was still seeking to remain with manufacturing it was China. Um, they were even during, even in if I remember correctly, twenty February of twenty twenty. China was trying to commit to military training exercises with Cam with um, Cambodia. Um, when well, granted, that relationship is going sour because um, the submarines that China provided, the engines don't really work properly. Mm -hmm. uh, so Cambodia told them, either you fix this or we're no longer going to go abide by these security obligations. Yeah, another one was the, um, the, uh, the Australia-Japanese cables, too. They're all like centered right in the same area. Well. Yeah, I was going to... Yeah, the Asia Infrastructure Bank, which... It's China, China. different. <laughs> <laughs> and they're right. Yeah, they are going after. They have something called a broadband for development yep. project. They haven't invested anything yet. Well, what yeah. is the goals of that but project? 
why I assume it's like you said, to somehow gain a, more control over the communications of that region. Not just that. I'm not sure. It's like they're trying to attempt, attempt to control the worldwide communications network. And that, that could be. I'm not sure exactly how it's going to play out in the strategic you know, right. landscape. But that, that they do have something. In, it's, it's purely like, not in draft form. They haven't put down any money. Right. And I think that has something to do with COVID. And, and again, like like Samar said, they're trying to maintain domestic stability yeah, at home. Right. Maybe branching out into a lot of new projects at the moment might not be the way to go. Like this this security pact, let me restate, they haven't stationed any troops yet. They've secured an agreement. If Chinese life and property is at stake, they can go in and take care of stuff. Right. With the consent of the Solomon Islands. But this is not a Guantanamo Bay basing scheme yet. Right. And that's and that is the big problem. A lot of people, U.S. Army. I'm just gonna put U.S. Army on blast. A lot of their head generals and bureaucrats, mm-hmm. they really are freaking out over this, and they they are sponsoring some wild counters to this. And they need to just relax, take a step back, mm-hmm. and view this in a cool manner. Go ahead, Brian. No, I'm just thinking about the parallels of how some of the. I'm just seeing the parallels mostly of just how it, these agreements are. That type of agreement was similar to what happened with China during its century of humiliation and all that. But then also we, um, and then I'll I'll give it to you. Um, yeah, I've been waiting for a while. Um, <laughs> Sorry about that. But this, but I mean, that brings up a good point because um, when we were talking about bringing up the cables and telecoms and um, owning the sense of uh, signals, intelligence capabilities. Um, when it comes to China's means of asserting its, its dominance in the Asia-Pacific, it's going to be through surveillance technology. Hence why, coincidentally, Chinese police just so happens to be in the agreement with the Solomon Islands. If China is able to implement surveillance technologies or even a surveillance technological apparatus within the Solomon Islands to which then they can exploit in certain ways without even having to send troops or even any additional Chinese police into the Solomon Islands. They're also able, if they're able in other scenarios, to do that. If they have a surveillance uh, apparatus within the Solomon Islands, they could then essentially do what they're doing in Xinjiang as far as facial recognition example uh, samples, um, data from whether that's phones or even government communications within the Solomon Islands to get a better feel or view of uh, the natives in the Solomon Islands for exploitation, that will put China in an even powerful position of essentially securing a technological hegemonic order over the Asia-Pacific to where they don't have to deploy personnel uh, all the time. They could essentially relay this information and essentially puppet the Solomon Island government to directly secure their assets. Well, there there are already like uh, Chinese police in the Solomon Islands, but uh, and that, that was just something I wanted to add. That was it. Over. <laughs> <laughs> this is good. We we have like a baseline for what's going on in the Solomon Islands. I just want to go around the table and ask. Well, going off of this 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 pact, what's been signed. What do you think is going to be the most likely course of action for what's going to happen, and what's going to be could be the most dangerous course of action? In, in looking through it, um, looking at it as like a U.S. policymaker, 
So, Brian, I'll start with you because you're giving me eye contact. Oh, I was trying to look down for a reason. Oh, no, you weren't. No, no, no. I'm starting with you. So, most likely, most dangerous, and look at it through the eyes of a U.S. policymaker. Oh, that part's going to be hard. Uh, well, just just what, what do you think they think is the most, what would you think would be the most likely course of action? And then, if you were a policymaker, what's the most dangerous? Um, I think the most, like, how. Well, I think the most, what most, for a policymaker, like the most likely would be trying to try to figure a way to put a military outpost in the area, or at least some type of outpost where you can put military personnel. It doesn't have to be combat personnel. It could be surveillance personnel. It could be like for a radar station or whatever. I think that's what, I think that's what the most, con I think the most dangerous would be if, as I said earlier with like the, trying to use the example of Manchuria in Japan is if. China decides to try to send in more troops, figure out a way to send troops into the Solomons and eventually raise that, raise that level and figure out ways to seep into the government to gain way more influence, then you basically have a proto-colony or a puppet state that you can use, especially that it's very close to a strategic ally and very close to very important trade routes. What do you got, Veronica? Um, most likely and, or, and most dangerous, or you can do either one. I think, I mean, I think most likely going on here, obviously, we've already discussed the extent of strategy that China's trying to, to gain to this. But I think when you think about the other ways they're trying to get involved in the Solomon Islands, when looking at kind of like the, the MOU with the planes and the things like that, trying to build something that's a little bit more beneficial to the Solomon Islands to get them on board because we've already talked a little bit about how the, that they have aid from other countries and also the fact that this has been going on i think this has been in the works for a while it's been postponed because of covid um multiple times so for me i guess i see it not going as far that brian was saying with the military route because that's going to push the us and australia um a little harder so i'm not sure i i think that they're going to stick with this weird open-ended thing and trying to get as much infrastructure and as much telecommunications related stuff in that they can under the radar, even though it's not necessarily under the radar, but I feel like people aren't paying attention to it. Sure. Anything to add, Zach? I don't really have an idea for the best possible solution, but I can think of the most dangerous one, uh, destabilize the government of Solomon Islands. Yes. Destabilizing the government of the Solomon Islands, putting in a puppet, a puppet state that would the very most favored would be the most dangerous. And and who would you be saying that would be an action taken by the Chinese or by us? I think if if, if we took that action, that'd be the most dangerous option. Okay, okay, yeah. I don't know. V, I I kind of agree with you. I don't. The most likely course of action in the next five years, maybe once or twice, there'll be a small kind of flotilla or whatever, like coming down from China to protect certain businesses, certain strategic interests. I think that's most likely action in the next five years. Um, most dangerous course of action in the next five years. Maybe there's some kind of blowback um, in Australia, United States, and New Zealand. They withdraw a lot of aid. <clears throat> the whole country kind of devolves into chaos. And then China uses that as an excuse to come down and then occupy it fully, like the Guantanamo Bay situation or, or a Muck Den situation. Maybe they occupy the whole country. That could be the most dangerous. Is it the most likely? By no means. Yeah, but it's, it's just something we, we should watch out for. Audrey? Um, 
If I were to approach this like any foreign policymaker who might be listening, <laughs> uh, <laughs> might I suggest we reassess how we approach our relationships to all these Pacific islands? They obviously seem to have differing interests, not only with each other, but with China. And that there is a difference between countering China and fostering a long lasting security relationship with them. And I have to agree with Wayne right here when he says, like, that the army, and he, he put him on class earlier. Um, Go on, Nancy. The, yeah, the <laughs> army is itching to pull the trigger, and I don't think that we need that here. No, this needs to be solved in a more timely manner diplomatically. Mm -hmm. I agree. We say the best for last, Samaj. What do you think the most likely course of action that China's going to take in the next five years will be? Most dangerous in that same time frame? And then try and look at it through the eyes of a U.S. policymaker and maybe provide a solution or two. Most likely, um, I see the Chinese kind of like using this as a lingering mechanism over Australia. Um, I see this as China, they have this agreement and they was like, you know, we, we have this agreement with the Solomon Islands. Uh, we haven't done anything, mm -hmm. but no, if you continue on this path, we'll do something about it. Mm -hmm. um, now, granted, yeah, China may have the largest Navy by ship number, but the real question is, okay, you have this agreement, Solomon Islands, let's say something happens. Does your Navy actually have the capacity to endure an operation? They can't, can they sustain it? Can, such a that's your worst, sustainability. Yeah, can you sustain it? We know, like, yeah, they're making these massive aircraft carriers, supercarriers, submarines, this, that. They don't work, right away. They don't work. Um, it's about but, sustaining the quality, not quantity. We'll let, we'll let some much yeah. But it's about, you have these grand ambitions so far away, uh, basically blue ocean uh, capabilities. Do you have the capabilities, the structures, the institutions, the the capacity to uphold these agreements? Mm -hmm. uh, we're not talking about something that's anti-piracy where we see trying to commit themselves to in Djibouti or um, in near Nigeria. That's completely different. You can send a frigate or so over there and then that's that. But we're talking about something that is a long-term st viable strategic positioning where you need the naval capabilities. Now, you may then ask, oh, Samaj, could they be implementing these strategies to then become the excuse to further embolden their naval ambitions? And we're getting into the differentiations of the island chains. We're like, okay, well, we've secured the first island chain, essentially, with missile boats, uh, proxy fisher boats, um, uh, A2AD, anti-aerial access denial, um, missile saturation systems, etc. Now we can move on our naval ambitions to the second island chain and then eventually the third. Um, the, the most dangerous, I would have to agree with you, Wayne, right? Um, and to some, some extent, you as well, Brian. Um, what I think the you most. Agree with Brian? I know. I can't believe wow. I said that. It, it's possible. <laughs> what the hell? The problem I, that I see um, is that, with this, especially with this agreement, is that in order for China to deploy or send anything, they need Solomon Island approval. But that only depends on if the Solomon Islands president continues to agree mm -hmm. with Chinese interests. What happens 
if let's say the Solomon Islands legislature or a, a eventual president decides that you know what this agreement with China is not this is not it let's reprioritize and let's go with the United States or with, or with Australia well that puts China in a very it puts them in a corner in this strategic area of, of the Asia of the Asia Pacific to a now they could then utilize our oh, Chinese lives are at are at risk and the Solomon Islands we may need to do an intervention well then what scale of intervention are we mm-hmm. talking about because then if you do a military intervention now you got the eyes of Japan Australia New Zealand some cases even India Indonesia maybe even and the United States you don't China the long term does not they don't need more enemies they need more for lack of better terms dumb politicians in these positions to where they don't understand strategy so then they can get away with things so what the United States needs to do is stop thinking with just tomahawk cruise missiles seriously this is not the age of hard power anymore. First, it's not. The more globaliz- economic globalization continues and the more the, the world becomes integrated, whether that's through Starlink navigations or whether that's literally through continual free trade agreements and reduction in poverty, it's to look at better means of statescraft that does not include, at first, economic sanctions being your, your go-to or invasions. It's not going to work, especially something like the Asia Pacific, where they've become economically so vital to the global economy. Any type of major disruption will send shockwaves around the world. So for policymakers or even staffers who can grow a backbone and go to their politicians and tell them the truth rather than what they want to hear is that, hey, we have this situation on the Solomon Islands where the best bet for the United States is to look at the nuances and differences within the Solomon Islands, as you alluded to, Aubrey, instead of looking at it in the eyes of a monolith, because it's not. So we'll go to you, Brian. Go I actually want to go back to the Navy aspect you were talking about. Go for it. Because when you were talking about it, it's like, ooh, they're making these new ships, and especially the aircraft carriers. Like, um, I, like the funny thing of aircraft carriers and... Depending, if there's any guys from the Navy who are listening to this podcast, they, Most may, not like, they may not like my views. Anchors away. Let's go. Uh, but basically, the thing with aircraft carriers is they are, they are a very important piece of, they are very important ships for any Navy. But these days, they're not really used for mostly their intention goals. If anything today, they are used as a status piece, as a piece to show prestige. Peacocking. It's the same thing as battleships. The re- you bring a battleship to a country's shores to say, hey, this is, this, is, this is what my country is capable of. This is what we're able to create. The name represents something important to my country, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that is honestly the same thing with aircraft carriers today. If you were able to bring an aircraft carrier, this monolithic ship, to someone's shore and... It is enough. It is enough to show people in another country how powerful you are, and that's kind of what we're seeing right now with the Chinese Navy. You're, they're making a bunch of aircraft carriers in almost record times, but in the end, you're seeing that they have a bunch of shortfalls, like they let, 
Leioning and the Shandong, etc. They have a bunch of problems, but they're making on record time because they want to show, hey, we are a powerful nation. We have the capabilities to make these grand, big ships. And that's, I think that's bottom line. Quantity over quality. Mm -hmm. I, as I said earlier. So um, I have a question for everyone here. Um, what do you think would be the most important thing to look out for with the Chinese Navy? Like, what what developments do you see that would like be the most important? Uh, it would the most the most dangerous. Yes, them able to sustain long voyages and conduct operations in that part of the of the, the globe for long periods of time. By long, I mean months. Okay. Because if you, if you can sustain a, a, a joint operation, because wherever the Navy goes, it's going to be joint operationally mm -hmm. based. You're going to need Marines to land, or police to land, whatever you're going to need. Um, air superiority or whatever it is in peacetime you need for reconnaissance purposes, for documentation, for imagery. So just seeing the Chinese do that in that part of the country and be able to potentially, in some kind of conflict, put that type of pressure on Oceania. By Oceania, especially yep. I mean Australia and New Zealand, that that would be the most telling for me. But what do you got, Aubrey? So Brian, uh, I just wanted to ask. So is is this just an assessment of us just extending gunboat diplomacy from the eighteen eighties to? <laughs> Brian does live in the past. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> I want to say I look more in the late nineteenth century. But other than that, he's a Grover Cleveland guy. <laughs> I can see. He still wishes he wanted the fourth time. I, <laughs> I know the concept isn't new. It's it's just it's it's just the most popular form that I think we 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 have right now. Well, I think gunboat diplomacy still exists. If people think it doesn't, then I think that's a very that's a misjudgment. I mean, it doesn't mean Russia's doing it in the Black Sea. <laughs> yeah, yeah they're, getting, they're, all, I, they're basically figuring out what happens when they do it. No, I <laughs> still don't think can't it's make, oh, make joint operations work. Well, here's what I'll say. I'll answer that. That question, where I can kind of, I can agree with Wayne Wright when he talks about sustainment. My, I'll say the most dangerous threat, if they're actually capable of doing it, um, is not actually the ship themselves, but the missiles that they put on said ships. Yeah. Um, China has been, missiles have been China's priority literally since the 50s. Um, and once they garnered said access from the Soviets first, and then American technology later in the late 70s and then throughout the 80s and then definitely during the 90s under Clinton. Um, the one thing that China has prided themselves on is their mi their missile capabilities. Not even just the, the capability to launch modern missiles, but also having modern missile defense systems. Um, so I, for me, I don't think it's, it's really for China... Um, the notions of utilizing the Navy as a, um, almost, I guess, yeah, as a force projection, but in a way of essentially not looking at it in the modern sense of a naval ship, but as a delivery system. Mm. Uh, we're like, yeah, okay, you have an aircraft carrier, okay, cool. Um, but the missiles that are on the naval ships that um, are sailing with set carriers, that's the dangerous part. Especially now that they're thinking about replacing their diesel electric submarines with, with uh, nuclear based um, and being able to send ships ideally to the coast of Alaska, which they have done last year. So, you know, I, I completely agree with that because with some of this little bit of research I've done recently in school with China, like 
they've been putting a lot of emphasis on their missile capabilities, as well as how their ships can use those missile capabilities, especially the hypersonic missiles. Like, um, I don't know what most, are, what most people think about those missiles, but I don't think they're meant to be putting on nukes. I think no. they're meant specifically to go after land targets, sea targets. They're supposed to be able to hit those type of targets very fast in a way that's, that the enemy would not know what hit them. So I think that is definitely seeing ships as a delivery platform to be able to use those capabilities. I think it's a very valid thing. I, I, I want to move away from the ship, the, the, mobile, the more mobile vehicle, uh, vehicular weapon delivery systems. <coughs> that's such a overpowered <coughs> term, I know. But uh, during World War II, when the Japanese were were holding these islands and uh, they were fighting the last man for them. Uh, There's something really cool I read from George Friedman, who made an article actually uh, in the Geopolitical Futures website. Uh, and he brought up the fact that a lot of the islands that the Japanese were using were meant to uh, project force as, you know, as like island fortresses, but also in a lot of them they had air, airstrips. And so there's just that the other possibility that, that China might uh, take that route as well, and just establishing these different airship trips in these different islands to just project this power and to contribute all these, these different waterways and uh, sea lanes. And uh, the Eurasia Times reported that they're starting to establish this aeronautical hub and uh, I just find it fascinating that there are a lot of parallels to this too in history. And just, just to go back to your point, we talked about the Mukden incident, uh, and just, just seeing the, the historical parallel to it. No, like, no, what you said about Japan, like that's the main thing. Like, the reason why they went out after all these islands midway, um, you could look at the uh, marshals and all that. The reason why is they want, Japan wanted to create a shield a bubble around itself, a defensive ring to defend itself against the U.S. And it exactly what you said. The reason was, like, once they took over these islands, they basically set up the defenses around them. They made airfields. They made capabilities so that they could both set bombers, reconnaissance aircraft, etc. It was supposed to be a first warning type of thing for anyone who wanted to attack their conquests from the Pacific because they fear the U.S. at that point. And you, in some ways you can actually see that with China too now because the as they start to, as they're starting to try to expand now, they're probably going to try to incorporate a similar strategy to defend their interests as well as the regions they're trying to influence. And the Pacific Island, the islands of the Pacific is a pretty good area for that. I, I, I don't want any any, any potential policymaker that may be listening to, to fall into the trap of historical analogies either. Uh, because the truth is, is that we need special sources close to the Chinese uh, leadership to exactly know their strategy and their intentions. And this is just looking at this through and seeing the parallels and seeing what might happen, not exactly what will happen. Mm -hmm. And yeah. we, we, I think us on the pivot highly advise to not 
go into the rabbit hole of historical analogy. Like, right. uh, like, no, even for me, I think I make enough historical analogies, but definitely all the time. It'll be a casual conversation. I've been doing it since I've known him. Hey, I like history. What do you want from me? That's but, fine. No, but um, no, the thing is, you can <laughs> you can look at history as a window to give you ideas, but also you need to look at what is happening in the here and now and look at news as well as maybe even look at some papers and to understand maybe what is different that's going on. For example, we're not like you could look at German policy and say they're doing a buildup. That doesn't mean you look directly at what Hitler did before he started World War II. You have to look at multiple different sources to be able to understand what's going on. I think also the other thing is don't stop reading sources that come directly from your sponsors. Um, especially if you are in charge of writing white papers on geopolitical strategy on what our armed forces or um, foreign officers uh, in the State Department should do. Look at the world as the world is, not as you want it to be. That way, although this world is an ugly place, you will be in a better position, intellectually speaking, understanding where your true allies are, where your foes are, and where and those I, who stand in the middle are. I think another thing to add to that, well, I think you kind of alluded to this, but I just want to make sure. Yeah, go ahead. Um, the other thing is if you're looking at any information, whatever, you don't just look at your own. You try to look at what the other side is saying. For example, you can try to look at what Chinese, if you can translate Mandarin, or if you can get Google Translate, you can try to look at certain stuff that the Chinese are writing and understand what they're saying. You may have to uh, be careful of what you're reading, right. depending, but look at all sources. And if you're able to listen, if you understand multiple languages, that is a huge opportunity to be able to understand what multiple sides say to this so you can get multiple perspectives. Mm -hmm. I'd like to just add on to that, to what Brian's saying, because I, I, I ran into a I think I've told you guys this before, well, off off the podcast, obviously, but... Uh, now we're going on record? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is the first. <laughs> no, but, but what Brian's saying about sourcing and looking at, at what the other guy is saying, uh, I think last year I was looking at news from Santa, which would, you know, is the Syrian Arab News Agency, mm -hmm. and they had news in Arabic, which the Arabic language version of it, which is completely more inflammatory than the English version that they had. And it's deliberate. It's meant to, uh, it's meant to put Syria in a more humanitarian aspect, mm -hmm. whereas the Arab version is supposed to incite and flame the, the native population who's going to read it more than me, a stupid Westerner who has no idea what's going on. Uh, and it's just very important that you differentiate that between your 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 actual news sourcing and reporting. Mm -hmm. And do you want to well, say something? One final thing, and then depending on who else you want to speak after, Ron. Depending. Uh, basically, uh, <laughs> no. One thing that I can think of just off the bat is even when we were first our first few episodes when we were talking about the possibility of Russia invading Ukraine. One of my main sources that I was using to help figure out what was going on was RT. And some people may say, no, that's an evil website because they're Russian propaganda. Yes, and that is why you need to look at because what 
how they word stuff as well as if you look at that, it helps you give you a perspective not only of what Russia thinks, but as well as what Russia is trying to say. Mm-hmm. And that is very important if you're trying, if you want to get as much information out anywhere as possible. My only comment on that, I mean, I agree with all of this, and I think it's always very important to look at the other side and analyze the translations. It's always something that's fascinating, specifically with Russian, but I can only imagine with Arabic as well. Um, But also knowing and learning about their government's relationships with other media, and so you can consume other media in other countries, like looking at media in the Western Balkans, for example. It gives you huge insight to what China views and is trying to develop in certain regions because of the the relationships they form with government-owned media in those countries puts a specific kind of message and, and form of propaganda out there that you can really draw insights on, and then you can do the same with Russia and their relationships with Central Asian um, media um, companies and so forth. And that's always just an interesting outlet in addition to looking at like the media in the country specifically that you're interested in, but also just looking at the relationships they have with other, you know, maybe less known, or maybe a language that you actually speak, so things like that, so you don't have that translation problem. I think we said it, all of our tidbits. <laughs> it's always fun going on the Iranian news agency and just saying, just, just BS on there, but I, I, I stand, I stand uh, just on my own two feet with the Iranian Well, good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad that you're standing. Um, so, with that, I mean, we've kind of just talked a lot on um, just the foundation levels on the Solomon Islands. And I think we have a, a bit more time where we can go into our second uh, point that I know Wainwright wanted to really talk about because this is very concerning, <laughs> very concerning, at least on the budgeting side of the United States. Um, we have our increasing um, budgetary, seems like we're just printing money and giving off money without really looking at the current our trends that we're seeing uh, when it comes to inflation and um, as well as some of these implications that this may have for the American Armed Forces. So, Wainwright, I know you wanted to talk about this as some way. In some way, this is like logistics, really. Um, sustainment and being able to sustain operations and not even just for the military, but literally for the damn nation. Um, but, Wainwright, this is your your suggestion, your pick for it. So, I'll let you have the floor. Yeah, budgeting is one of those aspects of statecraft that no one talks about. One, because it's boring. I'm sorry, I don't blame anybody. Yeah, I don't blame like, anybody. <laughs> but that doesn't take the fact away that it is important because it kind of bleeds into all the other aspects, whether it be military, diplomatic, um, particularly economic. And the reason I started looking at the budgeting crisis that the U.S. is experiencing is a couple reasons. Um, first was um, an article I read in Forbes magazine. I think it was about a month ago now. But the Deutsche Bank, um, they, they forecasted a recession was going to hit the United States in the near future. And they didn't say how big it was, but whenever there's a recession in the U.S., Deutsche Bank is the first one mm-hmm. to come out with it. Always. I don't know why, but they always have the inside scoop. Maybe they're the cause of it. I don't know. <laughs> but but they, they announced this, and I'm like, okay, this makes sense. Let's dive a little bit deeper. And so I started looking into not just uh, the COVID um, uh, relief packages, which have been distributed to U.S. citizens, but also other things. Um, debt relief, um, the Biden administration is, is pushing for college grads to relieve their debt. And then the other thing I started looking at, too, was military aid to Ukraine. Um, so I think we've extended, 
God, how much is it? Over about 33 million, I think, over a 10-year period to Ukraine. And all these all these allocations of U.S. resources are hurting not just the American people, but our credit rating as well. Speaking of inflation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're, we're, we're looking at the news right now. We've got CNN on Mortgage rate hits 5.27%, the yes. highest level since 2009. Yes. Jesus. So, so all these all these aid packages, all these, all these debt forgiveness things, they roll into the annual budget that the U.S. Congress passes and uses to allocate funding uh, to USAID, Department of Defense, different agencies. Um, and as Samaj has already said, we are in deep trouble debt-wise, and that is affecting our credit rating, which in turn is affecting the ability of, of the average American citizen to buy stuff like food or, or gas or oil. All, all these commonplace items are skyrocketing. Like, like eggs at the local Walmart where I live, they're at three bucks now for a dozen. Yeah, you well, look some at me. damn eggs yeah, that happen I'm, naturally. You tell me, I gotta pay. Yeah, and, and eggs, and eggs are like the easiest thing. Like they, they come out. You gotta do something to kill off a chick. But, but the point is, they're very cheap when they come to market. Normally, it's like how smart water is like four dollars and eighty cents. And I was like, this is water. Like this, <laughs> I don't feel any smarter. Exactly. I don't. <laughs> water is fifty cents. The bottle is three fifty. But these these little shifts in everyday items you see, it's it's partially. A product, not just of like economic turmoil, but also how the budget is allocated. Go ahead. Um, so I know we talked about this um, offline, and we bounce right back to you. But um, the the book that I recommend that everybody on the podcast reads, uh, "Principles for Dealing with the Changing World Order: Why Nations uh, Succeed and Fail." Um, but you talked about credit. I'll read a little bit from this. Uh, I think it's from the first part of the first chapter, where he says basically. Um, and I quote, a credit collapse happens when there's too much debt. Typically, the central government has to spend a lot of money it does not have and make it easier for debtors to pay their debts. And the central bank always has to print money and liberally provide credit like they did during the, um, the economic plunge driven by the COVID pandemic. The 1930s, for historical context, uh, the, their debt bust was a natural extension of the Roaring Twenties boom that became a debt financed bubble that popped in 1929. To give a little bit more context for that one, it was because one, easy credit that people were taking that they knew they could not normally pay back. And two, because there was after World War One so much mass production, there was so many, there was so much products in the market that essentially there was nowhere to basically sell this overproduction. Um, this had essentially produced a depression that then led the central government spending and borrowing finance by big money and credit creation to soar uh, by the by the central bank. Uh, because of this, we are we're kind of in this uh, this cycle that history based likes to replicate in every so hundred or so years. But what, what Samaj just described was an economic problem that created a budgeting crisis. That negatively impacted the lives of millions of American citizens, and not not for the better. It was, not for the better. And, and that's and this is what I'm talking about. So if you look at the U.S.'s annual budget at the moment, about 71 percent of that budget is wrapped up in mandatory spending. And by mandatory spending, I mean stuff like um, Social Security, Medicaid, Medicare, food stamps, um, health insurance in some cases. Uh, it's a massive portion of our of our annual budget, 
Like, like I mean, and we've been. And there's not too many other places we can cut the budget to relieve these these economic pressures. I mean, we've been cutting the military budget steadily over five years. Like, we haven't been adding to it. We've been cutting it in different ways. So, for instance, there used to be a massive uh, uh, budgeting allocation to maintain um, the regime in Afghanistan that we put in place. That obviously is no longer <laughs> no longer in force, and we've cut a lot of that or, or distributed it elsewhere to pay for these mandatory spendings. So at this point, if the U.S. wants to get its economic act together, it has to fix itself on the budgetary side. What do you got, Aubrey? You're raising your hand. I've never right. seen someone raise it. It was so man. elegant. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I just see class. I... <laughs> it is like class, isn't it? <laughs> uh, seriously. Um, I just, I see an issue coming out of this uh, in, ter in terms of uh, our security assistance to Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And if we think back to one of the major drivers that uh, possibly cost us the war in Vietnam, it was the underestimation of our, of our friends and allies in the RN. And we would just give them whatever we thought they need whatever we thought they needed, and we didn't go to them to ask them uh, what they needed, or and we didn't properly assess exactly mm -hmm. what they needed. And so I see, like, the Vietnam situation. If our budget cuts affect Ukraine, how will we be able to accurately assess their defense needs in the future? And certainly, if we see Ukraine faltering because of this, uh, will we have people who try to manifest an image of victorious Ukraine when intelligence or the reality of the grounds is differently. Uh, that's something that I think that we need to also consider here as well. Well the, well, the bigger problem is right now, we're not, in terms of budget and just, just, just oversight, we're not doing a good job at tracking what we're sending to Ukraine. Nope. That, that's the biggest problem. Like There is no mechanism. In fact, we're basically throwing money at a problem, hoping it'll fix it, and we're not taking into account where these other weapon systems will go, both during the conflict and after, and after well, the, especially only, after the conflict. Not only that, just throwing equipment, because we were talking about this, I think we talked about this the last episode, where like we are, we gave them so many stingers that Raytheon's trying to figure, no, who, I think it was Raytheon who made the stinger, right, or someone else? I think it was Raytheon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it was Raytheon's, it's Raytheon's trying to figure out how to recreate the stingers because the technology right. from right. them is not made anymore. Yeah. And then now we have we're sending in the M seven seven hundred seventy seven like uh, howitzer to mm -hmm. them, and I think so far we sent supposedly we sent like seventy five percent of what we have of those to Ukraine, yeah. or we're okay. sending them to Ukraine. One hundred fifty five millimeter rounds. We send about forty thousand, and uh, yeah, it's it's we send a lot of munitions. What happens if they stuff and Russia just gets it all? Well, I well that stuff's a wild long shot, but a lot of that stuff we're not. A lot of that stuff has been in service for a while, so I, I guarantee they've gotten their hands on it some way, shape, or form. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but if my more concern is like what Samaj was saying, say that all these Ukrainians, bless their hearts, they're kind of, they are addicted to having munitions from another country and then selling it off to third world countries in the Soviet Union, and they're going to do it here. That's how Iran got their first cruise missile. They got, got it. And, 
through Ukraine black market. And, that, <laughs> and that's my concern. So say say all these different say these different surveillance systems, all these small arms and ammunition. We sent about you know fifty million rounds, seven thousand small arms to Ukraine. That stuff will be sold off because that shit's easy to take. Yes, it is. And, and my point is, where is it going to go? Is it going to go to Yemen? Is it going to go to Libya, spark a new civil war there? Because that situation is still very tenuous. Yeah, that's a powder keg. Yeah. And, and, and so that's that's what we got to think. There is no mechanism in place right now. We are, we are about to throw $33 billion worth of military aid to Ukraine. And then it's going to end up biting us in the butt later. Because we have no way to track it. And we're just trusting our Ukrainian friends. I'm sorry. <laughs> Veronica, but, 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 that's what we're trusting them not to screw us over when they're not, when we're not when we're not really allies with them in the first place. Yeah, but here's the thing, though. It just sounds like uh, Afghanistan. Not in just Afghanistan, but we also understand that Ukraine is also one of the main military suppliers to China. Um, and so it's like well, that's lovely. China is very quiet when it comes to Ukraine and how much money we're in weaponry that we're giving to Ukraine. When literally one of the main sources to Chinese military equipment is Ukraine. So what the hell? That just reminded me. What the hell? No, no, that just reminded me because like I remember one of the reasons why China's not trying to say anything on the Ukraine war now is, is because of that reason. Especially because think about it. Where did China get its first aircraft carrier? Russia. No. Or Ukraine. 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 It was in the Ukraine. It was in for almost 20 years before the Chinese finally said, you know what, we're taking this. All freezing. And then, and then, no, even right before the war, China, I think China and Ukraine are already doing a deal where Ukraine would give them a bunch of cruise missiles. Which would make sense because the bulk of Soviet military industry was in Ukraine. Like, and, and that's, this, this all goes back to understanding the fundamentals of acquisition, budgeting, and how that impacts the other areas of strategy. If you can understand the acquisition process and then understand, well, is this being tracked by U.S. policymakers, then you'll be able to understand, well, how will this impact us in the future and get you to ask, should we be doing this right now? Well, that's what I'm confused about. I mean, I don't know much about this topic, but I don't understand why conceptually that would get a green light, given this, the history of Ukraine. But also just thinking about, say, you have a country that's quote-unquote united with you against an enemy like Russia, right? But they have completely different interests, completely different backgrounds for, and reasons for that. And they have no affinity to the United States, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say. I mean, people can disagree. Um, but say we're giving this aid or we're giving this, these materials, there is absolutely nothing in that agreement or that arrangement that would that would say that they can't just go and make the money that they need to off of that later on because economically they're like yeah. <laughs> distraught. So they owe us nothing at that point. God. Yeah, and I will say this, we brought up uh, budget uh, or policy problems that stem from a lack of understanding of the budget. The worst, it helped us in the time, but it bit us in the ass later, the Lend-Lease program. Mm -hmm. Finland was the only country to pay us back completely for that, and we basically gave millions, if not billions, of dollars in military equipment to the Russians, mm -hmm. to the Soviet Union, so they could roll through Eastern Europe, take over Ukraine, Poland, all these other places, stabilize their rule. Uh, I like to say they technically already owned Ukraine at that but point. I, I'm sorry, I misspoke. I misspoke. I apologize. But, the, but my point stands. That was a marvelous short-term policy that was disastrous in the long term. Absolutely disastrous. 
Go ahead, Aubrey. What do you got? I just there's a there's a chapter in uh, Ghost Wars by Steve Cole uh, that talks about uh, the CIA operation to uh, to recall all the stingers from Afghanistan. And, and, yeah, they they basically just it was just funny because the CIA was like, hey, we'll give you this money if you give us back these stingers, and all these Afghan warlords were like, bet. Well, I don't have them anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's just like how we provided um, Saudi Arabia and UAE weapons. Um, especially when it came to Yemen, and then miraculously, a lot of those small arms that we gave them, they showed up into the hands of fighters linked to Al-Qaeda um, in Iran. So it's like, that's another risk assessment that generally, especially in the modern area, when everything is connected, mm-hmm. has to be taken into consideration. Let's say, for example, you know, Ukraine is able to maintain substantial... Um, stability after or whenever all of this is over. Um, who's to say that those weapons, uh, as, you, as you alluded to, Wainwright, won't get into the hands of Russian or uh, Russian entities in the Donbass through the black market? Um, or they get in the hands of Ukrainian political parties that are not friendly to the West, and they are able to win a win, let's say, parliamentary seats or even the presidency in Kiev, which, first of all, if people think that, let's say, if Putin is able to get this land bridge, he's just going to leave Ukraine alone. Absolutely not. Those covert offensives will continue in, until he's able to achieve a total ironclad grip on Kiev. So for those that think, you know, just give Russia a land bridge and we'll be fine. No, we said the same damn thing with the Sudan land, and then look what happened. I can think of a few names who are probably thinking, just give Russia what it wants right now. Well, I'm not gonna name them, but I can think of them in my head right now. That whole thing with like the history of Ukraine. I personally, I didn't know that history of Ukraine being a supplier to China, essentially. Oh yeah. Um. So, is you think that's one of the reasons why NATO is reluctant to give them membership, aside from the well, obvious no. Article Five no, reasons? Not. Um, there are other stipulations that have to go into. Uh, NATO ascension, and one of them is that you have to be in full control of the totality of your national sovereignty. So Putin, for example, he could just take Donetsk, and Ukraine cannot get into that. Unless they want to completely renounce their Right. Um, the other thing, the same thing goes with the EU, where you need to have demonstrations of political and economic stability, which, quite frankly, has never really been the case for Ukraine um, yeah. since their independence from the Soviet Union. Uh, thankfully, because of Russian provocation, especially under Putin. Um, so, unfortunately, even naturally speaking, politically, Ukraine wouldn't be part of NATO. Um, now, it's different now we're talking about Finland and Sweden joining NATO, because they are now adamant that yeah. it is going to happen. Um, I mean, one th- also thing, one other thing is like, what if, if Ukraine does maintain sovereignty again after all this is over? And they become an ally of China. Well, China is because of the way that we've been treating. We was China we, doesn't deal with alliances. That's the thing. Okay. Um, they deal with security packs. <laughs> what if they have a security packs? But the thing is that China, with China's packs, China makes sure that, quite frankly, their obligation is not in the sense of Western understanding of security commitments. Um, it's in the notions of we only get involved if Chinese person die. Okay. Um, if our assets are not directly 
hampered or hindered on, um, we're not really going to get involved. They want to take. They want to ensure that the security of their assets are in their hands, not your hands. Gotcha. Hence, why they don't deal with alliances. They don't trust people. They don't trust their neighbors. So when we I have security agreements, they're look at the Solomon Islands, for example. Yeah, we'll have the security agreements, but we are the ones that, that are going to determine the security of our assets and our people, I not see, you. I see future plans for Africa. <laughs> That's the thing. I, even I see um, those future plans for Africa. Anyway, um, Samaj, I wanted to build off your, your last point about uh, uh, about Russia's uh, hunger for Kiev mm-hmm. not being satisfied until it's actually in their hands. And that is something that I completely agree with. And it is something that I've also seen in my own analysis of the subject. And I'd like to also throw it out there to some of our, our audience that uh, a, a military loss does not equate to how many units or how much damage has been sustained by the enemy. The enemy can completely just win the war by attrition. And uh, especially in the Russian case where historically they've they they just thrown millions and millions of men and equipment at problem and, and just say problem solved. Misunderstanding of the budgeting process. <laughs> yeah, like nightmares of it. Yeah. No. Every country's military doctrine is very different than that of the U.S. and that is something that I think a lot of people, especially here, do not really realize. When it comes to Russia, they're more than willing to throw millions at a problem. Can you elaborate on that? Actually, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just curious about that. Like what. The differences in like various military doctrines. Military doctrine can be made based on a country's culture. It can be made yep. on the history. Okay. It's made on multiple different factors. And like I said, Russia, their doctrine is very different from ours. Especially like when we were talking about the active measures paper earlier. Like our doctrines rely mostly on tactical operations. When Russia, they usually think they act strategically. Yeah. And one of their main things with disinformation and with cyber attacks is not to be like, oh, this is in the end for military victory. No, this is for psychological warfare. This is a way to tell, this is a way to demoralize your enemy until they don't have the will to fight until you can eventually consume them. And that's based off of Russia's um, history of dealing with external forces. Um, that seek to invade, such as the Mongols, where Mongols' devastations were just purely strategic. It's like everybody can get the smoke at this point. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Men, women, children, didn't matter. Um, interesting enough, Moscow's rise to prominence uh, was literally due to the Mongols, primarily the Golden Horde, uh, which is why I always raise the question, what if Novgorod became like, instead of Moscow, it was Novgorod that grew to prominence? I can talk a little Another trip to so, time. All right. Yeah. But that's a different... That's a different... That's that's Right. But it's that notion my time where um, Russia's strategic... Well, their military doctrine is deeply ingrained within their strategic culture. Um, is that, quite frankly, Russia's belief in stability and security is that we have to occupy as much as possible we need that grace area that keeps our perceived enemies as far away from Moscow as possible because of that inherited psychological trip for what happened with the Mongols. So similarly, they just inherited the Mongols' literally expansion conquest mentality, um, but just put it in the notion of to secure Moscow, 
we have to control the Eurasian plane. It's almost as if like the Russian, the Russian like people have just gone through psychological trauma on they a did. wide they scale. Have. They have. They have. They That's have. their entire That's history. Just their entire history. Jeez. Since 862. <laughs> <laughs> They're just... I call them masochists. Oh, no. I can see why. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, you're not wrong. It's literally what they've done. No. Um, I wonder if wonder Putin wants that buffer zone. Back to... We were talking about the, the, the problem, the concerns of our budgeting. Um, and we'll, we can wrap it up in a few minutes. Uh, with our, when we're talking about American budgeting, especially when it comes to defense, um, that will significantly... Unfortunately, impede upon our capabilities and purchasing power. Um, and it also, as you alluded to, uh, that may bring up budget cuts, um, especially when it comes to our strategic ambitions. So whether it's uh, Northcom, Syncom, etc. Um, okay. Well, and that's one of the reasons I think the Biden administration has really been stressing on the importance of alliances. If you can't do it yourself. You need your allies to pick up the slack, mm-hmm. whether it be in police work or humanitarian aid or, or something of that sort. I think these budgeting problems, even if the Biden administration doesn't really realize it, it is a way to kind of combat these budget cuts, which inevitably, as Samaj mentioned, will come in some way, shape, or form. Can I pose a question? Yeah, yeah certainly. Um, where, if you, when do we see these budget cuts, ideally, where would you want them to be? Well, I mean, they're already they're already happening. They're, they're damn Aubrey again. <laughs> again and, and, I'll, and I'll use a common example that recently ha- happened. There's a reason. There's multiple reasons, but one reason that the Marine Corps has cut their tank corps, like they no longer field tanks, and a lot of their logistical trail is because of budgetary concerns. They're doing a doctrinal shift, but conveniently, that doctrinal shift lines up with with. The budgeting allocations that were given to the to the Navy and the Marine Corps. Well, isn't that um, lovely? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's 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 a way to kind of mitigate these problems. I mean, it's not it's not a great fix. Another way has been uh, the military's transition away from from giving out pensions like they used to do in the fifties, um, up all the way up till twenty eighteen, into something called a thrift savings plan, which is basically like a it's like a mix of a four hundred one k and an IRA. So so. The military, at least, they're trying to do more with less, but you can't you can't cut more with the military budget. The problem is that's not where the bulk of our budgetary allocations go. It's to, like I said, these mandatory spendings, and that's where people get really sensitive. That's I hope that answers your question. It, it, it did. Yeah. Well, with that. I won't be sensitive in this podcast. Today. <laughs> <laughs> I've got sleep to catch up on. Uh, no, I'm wide awake because that Kavasi. Ah, wide awake. What? I was gonna do that. I'm breaking out in tune. Sorry. Three, two, one. Wide awake. Dear God. Uh, with that, we'll end on the two. Oh, actually, no. Good news. Um. This morning, we have hit our 84th nation to download the podcast. Ooh, who and was it's it? from You Know Who that's in Mali. <laughs> oh! <laughs> <laughs> okay, so an active listener and contributor has put Mali on the map. That's good. He put Mali on the map. So, 
You know you are. Thank you. Um, we are at 84 nations out of 195, which will bring us to about 44% of nations on the planet for now, since, you know, every other day a nation is born. Um, so with that good note, uh, we're on a fast track to 7,000 downloads, and we're just going to keep it moving. So with that, thank you for listening. Much peace, much love.